This morning, I want to talk a little bit about presumption. Presumption. I wonder if you've ever had someone presume upon your good graces. Maybe it was a uh, relative who came to visit, and they just kind of kept on staying, and they kept on staying, and you were wondering when they were ever going to depart. And it seemed that they made themselves just a little bit too at home. Or maybe it was a coworker who just assumed that you would do all of the work and that they would swoop in at the last minute and take all of the credit. Uh, perhaps you have a friend who is always demanding your time and attention and reassurance and affection at the most inconvenient moments. It's like they invite themselves out over for dinner uh, right on all of the wrong nights. Uh, and they seem like, they presume that they can just take center stage in your world. Uh, I've learned over the past four years or so that children are experts at presumption. Uh, one morning this week, as Jenna and I were having our coffee, uh, our four-year-old Sam comes down the stairs and crawls up in Jenna's lap for a cuddle. Now, um, I know that my boys, both of them love me dearly. Uh, we have lots of cuddles. But the fact of the matter is that during prime cuddling hours, which is between the hours of 4.30 and 6.30 AM, of course, uh, there's really only one place to be. There's only one piece of property in the universe, and that is mama's lap. That's right. Uh, my lap is a very distant second. I would even venture to say that I am chopped liver during those hours. So Sam crawls up into Jenna's lap, and our one-year-old, Asa, who had um, been up much, much earlier uh, and had his cuddle time already and was now proceeding to entertain himself by um, taking goldfish crackers and smashing them up and grinding them into a paste into our new rug, um, he peers up from this uh, activity and uh, sees his brother climbing up into Mama's lap. And all I can describe is that he had this look of sheer outrage. And it was as if he was saying, step aside, brother. That lap is mine. That's presumption. And he proceeded to waddle over, soiled diaper and all, and take possession of this prime piece of real estate. And this epitomizes uh, what I can have seen in several English dictionaries, uh, the definition of presumption. To presume means, uh, variously, to undertake without clear justification, to dare, that's my favorite, uh, or to expect or assume, especially with confidence. My one-year-old presumed. He dared to walk over and climb up as if he owned that lap. And in a sense, he was right to do this, wasn't he? I mean, Jenna and I would both say to both of our children, my lap is always yours. Um, when you're 18, that's going to get a little bit more uncomfortable. But nonetheless, my lap is always yours. Uh, but as we grow up, uh, we kind of unlearn this, don't we? Um, we learn to think uh, more of other people and of their needs, which is really good, I think. Um, but also we learn to fear rejection. We learn to recognize that relationships are transactional, that people have limited grace toward us, and that there's a certain line with everyone that we don't want to cross. You don't want to step too far and suddenly, instead of encountering someone's good graces, discover that you have presumed, and now there's a cold, icy shoulder toward you. 
I wonder if you've ever, I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever found yourself presuming upon the good graces of another, having inadvertently stepped across that line of good grace? We learn not to do that. Uh, In an affluent, polite society like Fox Chapel, we've learned that it's better to be self-sufficient than it is to be needy. You don't want to be too needy. It's better to ask too little than it is to ask too much. It's better to go it alone, to pay for yourself, than to presume upon the graces of other people. Everyone wants to be the guy that can afford to pay for everyone else's dinner. No one wants to be the guy whose dinner is always being paid for. But here's the challenge. Uh, We're a church, and we're trying to follow Jesus. And uh, part of following Jesus means unlearning all of this polite behavior. You can't just take this thing that we've learned in the world and transfer it over into our relationship with God. It just won't work. Because Jesus invites us, I would even say Jesus commands us to presume upon him. I'm going to show you what I mean by opening our text from Matthew chapter 9. If you have a pew Bible before you, uh, you can open that up. Matthew chapter 9, that's in the New Testament, the second half. Someone can call out uh, the page number, or you can find it in your bulletin. 814. Uh, If you've read any of the Gospels before, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, You'll find that this is probably a familiar text We find it in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have the same account. Jesus is on his way to save a young girl. And while he's on his way, a woman who has been afflicted with a chronic bleeding disorder interrupts the story. What she does is she reaches out and she grabs the edge of his garment. Because she says, if I just touch him, I'll be made well. She has the boldness, the presumption, to interrupt Jesus. And we see parallel accounts of this story in Mark and in Luke. And as a side note, uh, if you're looking for a really great sermon on Luke's account of this, I recommend you to go onto Google and to to Google um, Cat Shuttleworth Sermon. Uh, Our very own uh, rector's wife, Cat Shuttleworth, I'm going to call her out. She's probably mortified that I'm saying this. But she preached on this last summer um, and gave a really really magnificent angle on this. It was an excellent sermon and really spoke to me. So Google that. It will come right up. I recommend it. I commend it to you to listen to this week. But this raises a question, right? Why are we preaching on it again? Wasn't there like an administrative oversight? Oops. Same Same story, twice in a row, two years in a row. Why are we doing the same text again? Well, we're not. Um, It's the same story, but it's a different text. And what you'll learn as you read through the Gospels is that different writers portray the same stories in different ways to emphasize different things. Let me just show you concretely what I mean. Uh, Luke's account of this story is 287 words long in the original Koine Greek. Mark's account is 373 words long. Our text today from Matthew is a scant 138 words. So that's less than half as long as Luke's version and roughly a third as long as Mark's version. Why? That's the question. 
Why so short? Why are you abbreviating it, Matthew? Most commentators think that Matthew cuts out all the extra details because he's driving home a point. Uh, has anyone ever tried to tell a joke and the, the backstory just went on too long? <laughs> right? It can be really, really unpleasant. You get mired in the details and you miss out, and it's not funny because you miss out on the, the punchline, right? The point of the joke, the point of the story is to tell a point, tell it fast, get in and get out. I think that's what Matthew is doing here. So this raises the other question, what's the point, the punchline? What's the point of the story that Matthew is trying to tell here? We find it in the verses right before our passage, right before it. Um, some of the disciples of John the Baptist are talking with Jesus. They come up. Uh, John was a prominent religious figure at the time. His disciples were super hardcore. They were very devoted. And they come to Jesus and they're like, why aren't your disciples uh, practicing certain religious practices like we are, for instance, fasting? Why don't you guys fast, Jesus? And this is Jesus' response. He says, my disciples don't fast and do this other religious stuff because something new is happening in my ministry and your old religious paradigms just won't work with it. The old religious paradigm won't work with the new thing that is happening. You need a new way of thinking altogether. And he gives us two examples of this. Uh, Matthew 9, 16. He says this, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the old garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So in both of these examples, we have something new... Uh, that is either sewed in, onto or poured into an old structure. And how do, what's the result? Disaster. Anyone who's ever tried to patch up an old pair of jeans uh, will know how this goes. right? You have to pre-shrink -shrink your patches first. The wineskins example is a little more complex. right? Uh, we generally drink our wine these days uh, from glass bottles. Well, hopefully not directly from the bottle, but you get my point. Uh, but in Jesus' day, wine was often stored in these leather pouches, these leather sacks called wineskins. Um, and they would have the, the sack and then you'd, I guess, plug the cap on somehow. And um, new wine emits gas as it ferments. It ex so the contents of the pouch will expand so when you put it in a wineskin, you want to make sure that it's a new wineskin because if they're made of leather, new leather is going to have some give in it, right? It's going to expand. So as the gas ferments, as the wine ferments, the gas comes, the contents expand, the wineskin can expand with it, right? New goes with new. But if you have an old wineskin and you pour all of that new wine into it and you plug the cap, and the, the wine starts to ferment, and the gases start to come out, and the wine expands. This wineskin that's already stretched to its limit, boom, it explodes, and you end up with purple sandals. 
in the same way, if you take this new thing, Jesus says, that's happening in him, and you just pour it into your old religious framework, it simply will not work. Just won't. And if you want to understand and relate to Jesus, you have to recognize that the rules are different with him. It just works different. If you've been raised in a religious household and you grew up learning all of the right things to do, and then as an adult you hear about Jesus, and you think you might think that this is exactly uh, what you've always been raised with. You might have a certain set of expectations walking into a relationship with Jesus. Okay, I do this, and I do this. If I've had a good week, then I can come and pray to him. I need to make sure that I have my ducks in a row. I need to make sure that I have something to add to the grace that's extended to me. But Jesus says, oh no, it does not work like that. You need new wineskins. You need a new paradigm. That's the point. That's the punchline. And now the story proceeds rapid fire and gives us two examples of what this new framework, this new wineskin is going to look like. And as uncomfortable as it sounds, both of these examples teach us to presume upon Jesus. I know that that word might make some of you want to squirm in your seat. And perhaps that's good. This is a passage that is, that is meant to provoke us. All of us moral people. All of us self-sufficient people who don't want to cross the line of God's good graces. Matthew wants us to squirm. So let's look at verse 18. Jesus is in, this, in the middle of this sermon with John's disciples. And while he was saying these things to them, verse 18, Behold, a ruler, a synagogue ruler, came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. This is very presumptuous behavior from a religious man, too. He interrupts Jesus in the middle of his sermon, and then he falls on his knees and just blurts out his problem. Then he demands that Jesus come and fix it. It's like, think about this. I I mean, I'm not Jesus, definitely. Uh, But if someone walked in in the middle of this sermon and said, hey, Ben, can you fix the printer? It's broken upstairs. I really need you to do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Sorry, guys. I'll just hang tight here with me for about 20 minutes. You would all be a little bit put off, wouldn't you? But that's basically what Jesus does. How does he respond? Jesus rose and followed him. Verse 19. Jesus proves to be totally interruptible. He gets up in the middle of his sermon and he just walks out with this guy. It's amazing. And then as Jesus is on his way to this man's house, verse 20, behold, a woman, a little lower on the social hierarchy in the first century, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood, a little lower still, for 12 years, a little lower still, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. I don't know about you, but generally I think touching strangers is looked down upon in polite company just reaching out and grabbing their clothes. I tend to be a little put off when people do that. But she, she presumes, she says to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And this desperate woman interrupts the interruption. 
This is presumption. She presumes upon Jesus' good graces. And she does it because she's out of options. She's tried everything else. Oftentimes our suffering breaks us out of the shell of our politeness and our self-reliance. Our suffering teaches us to get real. Our suffering forces us to reach out our, hand, our hands and actually seek intimacy with other people, to let down our walls, because we often have no choice. We only cross the line with others when we have no choice. But oh, the things that we find when we do. How does Jesus respond? Verse 22, Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Again, Jesus proves to be totally interruptible. He stops in the middle of this important errand, turns around and focuses his attention on this presumptuous woman. And he calls her daughter. And he makes her well. And then he goes and finishes his errand. He goes to this man's house He disperses the crowd of people who are mourning and playing sad instruments and causing a commotion. And then, verse 25, he went into the house and he took the man's daughter by the hand and the girl who was dead arose. And the report of this went through all all of that district. End of story. The only thing that Jesus doesn't finish here is his sermon. Remember, Mark and Luke give us much longer, more detailed accounts of this. Uh, But here, Matthew puts it brief and to the point. And that's because he's focusing on these two interrupters, these two presumptuous people. They show up in the middle of the story uninvited. They ask big things of Jesus. They have nothing to commend themselves. They offer nothing in return. They don't bargain with Jesus. They don't come with reasons why they deserve his attention. They don't show themselves to be particularly religious. They don't consider the social consequences of their actions. What they do is actually quite humiliating. They're just needy and presumptuous people coming to Jesus. And the pouring of the story is this. If you really understand Jesus, you'll come to him like that. If you really understand Jesus, you'll come to him like that. Not with all the other garbage that we try to throw in the way. Our, in our liturgy, you'll find, uh, before we take communion, uh, the word presume is in there. It says, we do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. But I want to add some present parentheses into that and say, oh, but we do presume. Oh, but we do presume. We assume and we come boldly, but we actually have good justification for that. I have a friend who is a very responsible person, a self-starter, up from the bootstraps kind of guy. And uh, one season he was really struggling with his small business. Uh, The business was taking on water Finances were really not good. He had two little kids. It was not looking pretty. He said he was sitting in church one day, 
in the middle, middle of all of his self-reliance, trying to find his way out of the corner that he had been painted into. And he was just, he was ignoring the sermon, as we are all so wont to do. Um, and, and just thinking to himself, oh, I wish I could just crawl up into my mother's lap again and let all of this go away. I wish I could just crawl up and hide in my mother's lap, the one safe place in the world. And he said to me, he told me the story that he doesn't know if it was audible or not, um, but the way that he heard it and encountered it at the moment, it was clearly an audible voice, as if someone in the congregation was just talking directly to him. And the words were this, you've been looking to the wrong lap. My lap's been here all along. Why are we looking to the wrong lap? Why are we so afraid? Why do we think that we have to um, prop ourselves up or be something? Jesus sees through all of that. He's not interested in that. He's, e he's interested in the part of you that you want to hide. The real, the real you. He sees it and he wants it. That's the you that he died for, not all of the artificial construction that he makes, that we make around ourselves. Um, this isn't like a special little portion of Christianity. This is Christianity. Essentially, there is nothing else. There is a relationship with God, a relationship with ultimacy. And God says, come to me like this. So you know what I think we should do? We should come to him like that. We should crawl up in his lap, broken heaps that we are. And maybe that'll give us the grace to start to be honest with ourselves and with one another so that we can presume and we can become people not of works but of grace and of mercy. That can change the world. We have a Savior who invites us to presume and come like children. He gave his own blood so that we could presume and come like children. It's safe. So I invite you all, as we continue in worship, to come to Jesus, honestly and truly, in your heart of hearts, just like that. Amen.